Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Senator Jeff Flake defends engaging Cuba. Tucker Carlson evaluates the new political landscape. Julian Sanchez talks about the costs of the surveillance state. And Ilya Shapiro evaluates how corporations may assert religious liberty. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. We are told that we live now in a libertarian moment and to parse out what that might mean if it is in fact true. We're talking with uh, David Bose, executive vice president of the Cato Institute and author of the new book, The Libertarian Mind. We're also talking to Tom G. Palmer, executive vice president of international programs at the Atlas Network and also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. So, uh, David, first to you, we hear from no less than the New York Times that we're in uh, a libertarian moment. So what accounts for that? What might that mean? The folks over at Reason like to talk about a libertarian moment in, in sort of cultural and technological terms, uh, the diversity of culture that's available to us and that's available to so many people to make culture these days because of technological changes, the way the internet is allowing small groups of people uh, to find each other who couldn't have, those kinds of things. I'm not much into pop culture, so I focus more on politics. Um, and I guess what I would say about a libertarian moment in politics is one thing we know throughout American history is that there is a thread of distrust of power, which therefore means distrust of government, and a commitment to liberty um, that is sometimes not as easy to see as other times. but is always there. And one of the things that happens is that when government tries to bite off too much of a chunk of power, there tends to be pushback. And so starting maybe with 9-11 and the Patriot Act, you got a pushback there, but it wasn't all that strong. Then after seven, eight, nine years of war, you got a lot of response to foreign intervention that goes on and on forever. That was one of the reasons that uh, uh, a Republican was not elected president in 2008. And then in response to the financial crisis and the Wall Street bailouts and the automobile takeovers and all of that, you got pushback there. And then right on top of that came uh, Obama's health care takeover. And all of that together created the Tea Party, which is a huge and deeply rooted American response to government takeover. Simultaneously, I think, you have movements for marijuana legalization and for gay marriage that are not always the same people, but always reflect this deep American strain of individualism and, and libertarianism. Tom Palmer? Well, I, I think that a few of the really important elements were the total failure of government, which we witnessed in Iraq. We were told that by invading that country, it would turn into Oregon within six months. It would all pay for itself. Everyone would be happy. Rose petals uh, on the streets uh, didn't turn out too well. And I think a lot of people got not just a serious case of buyer's remorse, but they began to question, do our political leaders really know what they're doing? Should we be entrusting effectively uh, young kids with boxes of matches. Maybe we should begin to put some limits on their powers. The second thing was, as David pointed out, the revulsion at the enormous cronyism that was unveiled during the financial crisis and after. 
It was caused by cronyism. And then the answer that we were given by the political class, Republican and Democrat, was more cronyism, bailouts for all of their uh, rich friends, companies are too big to fail, and so on. And normal people said, hey, I, I pay my bills, I pay my mortgage, why should I have to bail out big companies that took big risks, and now they get bailed out with taxpayer money? I think that those have been very important driving forces in this movement. A couple of things I, I wanted to talk about uh, related to why uh, as, as you said, David, the, the folks at Reason talk about us living in a cultural libertarian uh, moment. Information asymmetries that have been really durable over long periods of time are beginning to be broken down by uh, uh, software applications like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, and other things that allow people to make use of their own reputations in a way that they haven't been able to before and has revealed I think, uh, a, a more robust civil society that people might not have been willing to uh, give shrift to before. In some sense, I mean, I hear all this talk about how the internet is changing everything. And my view is it's really just accelerating a market process. The market has always been about entrepreneurship and finding customers and finding suppliers. But that can happen faster now, and the crowdfunding is an indication that it's easier to find small donors than it used to be. Um, so all of those things, I think, are just being accelerated. Fifteen or so years ago, the late Bill Niskanen, who was chairman of Cato, combined with a senior fellow at Brookings uh, to do a book called Going Digital. And I always remember one of the things they predicted there was – that there would be real economic pressure on intermediaries, people like realtors, because it was going to become easier for buyers and sellers of houses to find each other. And I don't know if they necessarily thought about uh, passengers and drivers finding each other and renters and people with apartments finding each other, but all of those kinds of things they predicted, and it's taking time, but all of that is happening. And that ought to give more people a sense that I'm in control of things, and if I'm in control of this, why can I not be in control of other things? You would think anybody who's figured out Uber ought to wonder why their kid has to go to an officially assigned government school. That doesn't seem to have really happened yet, but I expect that it's something that culturally ought to follow. You know, I'll be very frank. Uh, every generation says the new technology is radically changing everything, and that's been going on for a long time. So I'm, I'm less likely to focus on that. I think ideas are important, so I don't poo-poo that or, or put it down. But I think that there's been a dramatic change in the way people think about government, and in particular, whether it's the proper role of government to dictate to you how you live your life. So let's take the case of marijuana as a simple example. Lots of people, including people who live very conservative lives in this country, uh, have began to, begun to ask the question, has this drug war made us safer? And the correlations between violent crime and prohibition of narcotics, as it was with alcohol, is simply undeniable. More people have been opening their eyes on this question. More people are opening their eyes to toleration. And here I think that the more gay people coming out has had a, a generally positive impact on the whole society. People recognize that the person who didn't look any different was a little different, and that's okay. It's not a threat to you. I think this has helped to generate generally a more tolerant live and let live 
uh, society. So that these ideas are percolating around our social order and more people are recognizing there's a name for it. The name is libertarianism, the philosophy of live and let live. Marijuana and marriage, those two issues have trended very closely. Is there any explanation for why that is other than we just happen to reach uh, a critical mass of opinion where we've had a generation of people growing up with both a widely available pot and gay people in their lives that they figured we've reached a critical mass where the people view these things as not particularly problems? I think there's one underlying thing between be, behind those two besides the letter M, and that is when people become more open about it. And what I think was relevant or very important in accepting and tolerating gay people in our society was when more people came out and people said, well, you know, I was raised to think that's terrible, but my niece is gay or my neighbor or grandson or somebody in the family, neighborhood, workplace, and they seem okay. That seems to be the, the real tipping point there. I think something similar happened with marijuana. Lots of people said, you know, I smoke marijuana. I don't hurt anybody else. We, you can smell it on the streets of American cities, quite frankly. You walk down a lot of cities and you can smell a joint. Now, I don't smoke it. I don't like being around it. It's not a part of my worldview, but I know it's out there. And I know it's out there because more people are being open about it. And that has led people to ask the question, why are we spending all this money to imprison them? Why are we doing that? And that has, has I think, been a very important fuel for the marijuana liberalization movement. The next point behind that, of course, just like with prohibition of alcohol, is politicians learned you can tax it. And there's a lot of money in marijuana taxes. And that has been one of the reasons why I think it's going to be very difficult for the prohibitionists and the, the schools and the people who favor coercion to repeal legalization in those states where it took place. One reason the marriage equality movement has suddenly moved much faster because really, you know, we've been talking about uh, the, the marijuana issue for 25, 30 years and still only up to two states that have legalized it. Marijuana, uh, marriage um, is now at around 37 states. One difference is the courts recognize equal rights under the law. So when people started talking about marriage equality, the courts recognized, hmm, there's an equal protection issue here. The courts, however, do not recognize as much individual freedom. They don't really read the Ninth Amendment into the Constitution, and therefore, if they banned marijuana for women but not for men, that would be gone. But just generally banning marijuana, the courts have not recognized as much of a right to liberty as they do a right to equal liberty. There's a, a related issue where Cato Institute and many other people have been in court on this question, and that's the Tenth Amendment. The federal government does not have the authority to forbid people in the state of Oregon or the state of Wyoming or New Jersey to buy, sell, or consume marijuana. It's not part of the enumerated powers of the federal government. That's a very important question, and a lot of states, I think, have been held back from their own legalization efforts because of the fear that they'll be punished by the federal government, they'll lose highway money, and as has happened in states that mo took moves toward decriminalization, federal agents continue to arrest people, although what they are doing is not illegal under state law. 
So that's another area where libertarians have worked very hard. We have not gotten much purchase on that. But the Tenth Amendment is very clear that the federal government just doesn't have those powers. Say what you will about the prohibitionists. They did understand the federal government couldn't ban alcohol without changing the Constitution. The drug prohibitionists have not had the same respect for the Constitution. Speaking of respect for the Constitution, we could say a lot about uh, George W. Bush, but the, the two wars that uh, he led the United States into, he went to Congress for support in order to do that. Uh, President Obama has, despite bombing more countries than uh, George W. Bush, has not sought that same permission on in a number of cases. Well, that's right. And President Obama, his future vice president and his future secretary of state all said in a written questionnaire in 2007, I think it was, as they were running for president, that the president does not have the authority to take the country to war without the authorization of Congress. They were running against George W. Bush, and they were very clearly about restraining the powers of the presidency. And then when they became president and vice president and secretary of state, suddenly their point of view changed. Um, Hillary Clinton is now dropping hints that she wanted to get involved in even more wars than President Obama did. And she doesn't mention anything about getting authorization from Congress. So it is very unfortunate, and it's especially unfortunate, you know, when you have a conservative president who tries to get the federal government more involved in education, it really squeezes out the opposition. Where are you going to rally people against federal involvement in education if the leader of the Republican Party is pushing it? Where are you going to rally people against the imperial war presidency if the liberal leader of the Democratic Party is the one pushing war powers and the imperial presidency. With specific re respect to President Obama and respect for the Constitution, or at least the, the War Powers Act, um, you know, we have a generation of young people who've grown up with war, and it's just been a part of their lives uh, since 9-11. They haven't known a time when the United States hasn't been dropping bombs on various countries and a lot of the actions that the, the President Obama has taken really points to the importance of a libertarian uh, awakening of sorts with respect to the fact that he's setting a precedent for future presidents that may have even less respect for uh, constitutional uh, strictures. There's a very important uh, kind of libertarian argument that I have always found helpful when dealing with people who are diehard conservatives or diehard liberals or right or left, Republican or Democrat, when they keep demanding more powers for their side, as I say, you should ask yourself, is this a power you would feel comfortable being exercised by your enemies? Uh, you won't be in power forever. Let's hope there's a, a democratic turnover and change of parties. And these powers will be exercised by the people you hate and loathe. How will you feel about it then? And if you don't like the answer to that question, you should not put that power into the hands of your friends either. And when people think about that, a lot of people begin to change their mind. It's a very powerful argument for limited government. Imagine all these powers are being exercised by people who have values totally different from yours, different political ideology and so on. How comfortable would you feel with that? And if you do not feel comfortable, that's a strong argument for limiting the power of government and not allowing them to exercise that coercive authority. It ought to be a good argument, but do you find that it is, in my experience, going back at least to the Clinton administration, when we would say, 
you give these powers to the Clinton administration, um, what happens when there's Republican administration? And then saying to Republicans during the Bush years, if Bush has these powers, the next President Clinton will have those powers. Is that what you want? I didn't find that that seemed to get much traction with people. I think you spend more time in Washington. Uh, I think actually typical, normal, everyday people when who are maybe politically active in their parties or have strong political views, it does cause them to think twice. I don't think it causes many senators to think twice because they have such limited time horizons. All that all politicians care about, let's say at least 90% of the time, is getting reelected. Their time horizon doesn't go beyond that. But I think that people who are thinking of themselves as citizens rather than elected office holders are more likely to be reflective about what kind of a constitutional order do they want to live in. David, in your book, uh, The Libertarian Mind, which is available at Cato.org and uh, Amazon.com, among other places, you uh, devote a great deal of time talking about respect for the individual. Uh, Ayn Rand, I believe, was the one who referred to the individual as the smallest unit of society. So uh, what is missed by a public discussion uh, in politics where we should be focusing more on respect for the individual well, that goes across all kinds of issues from do you have the right to choose the school your children will attend? Do you have the right to choose who you will marry? Every issue should involve more respect for the individual. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That doesn't mean the pursuit of happiness by some collective. It means each individual in society. And one of the things that we have accomplished in this country is extending that promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to more people, to people of color, to women, now to gay people who weren't really included in it back in the days of the Declaration of Independence. So that's one of the things that's been going on. But I think if you just look at every issue that we talk about, taking the money you earn, regulating how you can run your business, telling you you can't get married, telling you you have to photograph the wedding that offends your religious sensibilities, all of those things involve a disrespect for the individual and some sense that there should be a collective political decision about everything that affects our lives. And, and I think there are some people, um, and Hillary Clinton is a good example, who just absolutely think there should be a collective decision about everything, and other people, maybe more found in the Republican Party, who wouldn't, who wouldn't agree to it if you put it that starkly, and yet when something comes along that offends them, whether it's inner-city teenagers with their uh, pants down their butts or people getting married or people smoking marijuana or people using pornography, then they too want a collective decision that denies individual rights, even though they like to talk about individual rights. Cato Audio is uh, consumed by an educated group of broadly libertarians. What will they find in this book that uh, might surprise them or, or something that they might find compelling or something they might disagree with? One thing that will surprise a lot of libertarians, I think, is that if we call this book the best available introduction to libertarianism, there are a lot of libertarians who say, I don't need an introduction. I'm already a libertarian. I already know. I learned a lot writing this book, mostly from what Tom Palmer told me or books he handed me and said, you have to read this before you can write about that. So I think any reader is likely to learn something from the book and perhaps more uh, than he expects. 
I also hope they will find the book they'd like to give to their friends who say, what is this libertarianism you're always talking about? Uh, so whether that's surprising or not, I don't know, but I hope it is something that's useful to people. Let me add that it's unfortunate if people see this as like a introductory book. It's written in a style that's suitable to an introductory book. It doesn't attempt to confuse you like most works in political theory. They write in a language that's so complex you have to be a member of the club in order to understand it. You have to have a master's or a PhD. And this book is written in a very plain-spoken, normal English style. But the content is rich and deep. And I can say, having read hundreds of those books that are difficult and complicated, that I think it has a deeper appreciation of the core issues, the relationship of the individual to society, the relationship of the social groups to government, the way the market economy works, the emergence of norms and institutions than any other book I can name. I really think it's an outstandingly good work. And it is a book for someone also who says, oh, I've been libertarian for years. I read all these books. I guarantee there is no one I know who, upon reading this book, would set it down and say, I didn't learn anything in this book. There's something in it for everybody. All right. We're going to leave it there. Tom Palmer, Executive Vice President of International Programs at the Atlas Network and Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, and David Bowes, Executive Vice President at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, The Libertarian Mind, which you can get at Amazon.com and Cato.org. The longstanding U.S. embargo with Cuba has cost both Americans and Cubans dearly. Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake supports the right of Americans to visit Cuba and vice versa. He argues that if someone is going to restrict his travel to a country, it better be a communist. Flake spoke at the Cato Institute in February. Well, talking about Cuba, you ask why I'm interested in Cuba. Uh, as you mentioned, Arizona doesn't have a lot of ag trade. Uh, they don't want to buy cactus in, uh, in Cuba. There's, there's not a real reason there. Um, I like to tell people I took a poll among Cuban Americans in uh, Arizona, and both of them said, just move right ahead. We like what you're doing. <laughs> so, but to me, it's, it's just been really an issue of freedom. Uh, Americans should be able to travel wherever they want, unless there's a compelling national security reason. And there hasn't been with Cuba for a long time long time. But uh, rather than go through a laundry list of, of uh, why uh, I think we ought to lift the travel ban and, frankly, the entire embargo, I would do the whole thing. Uh, I thought that I would just go through a few myths that are out there that, that are often brought up by the opponents of the new policy in Cuba. Uh, the myth one that I'll address is uh, don't change a thing. We have the Castro regime just where we want them. They're on the ropes. They won't last much longer. Now, this policy has been going for 50 years, and, and, and no doubt uh, the uh, Cuban economy is not in a good place. They're heavily reliant on subsidized oil coming from Venezuela. Um, they're not doing well. The average wage is about $20 a month. Uh, their economy is in, in tough shape. But they have been through worse, if you can believe it particularly in the early 90s uh, when the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated and those subsidies stopped. They went through what they called the special period, and it was quite a time. Um, conditions now are tough, but they don't approach 
what went on during that time, and still the regime lasted. People will say, well, uh, Raul Castro is there now. Uh, when he goes, there will be no more Castros in office, and then things will change. And not necessarily. I don't think we ought to count on that. Uh, this is a system that may endure beyond, or will endure beyond the Castros, and, unless uh, we find a more effective way uh, to influence it. The myth number two, that we have to continue the isolation of Cuba, isolation for one, isolation for all kind of attitude. I would uh, simply point out that uh, the isolation uh, of Cuba is kind of a myth. Uh, we are Cuba's fifth largest trading partner. Since uh, the year 2000 or so, we've been trading a lot, particularly in agricultural products. Uh, at a peak of 2007 or 8, of about, uh, I think, seven $800 million. It's now just over $400 million. Some of the changes uh, that with financing have brought that down a bit. Uh, but there's a lot of U.S. trade um, with Cuba. Cuba obviously trades with just about every other country in the world as well. And uh, I should mention that... Uh, one figure I found interesting, a full quarter of Alabama's agricultural revenue comes from exports to Cuba. So when you look at different pockets around the country, there's, there's a lot of trade going on and a lot of people relying on it. And you have a, a, a lot of people in the farm community who, who want to see that uh, obviously increased. Outside of trade, we also have a lot of people visiting Cuba. Uh, since the president loosened restrictions on Cuban-American travel in 2009, uh, visits uh, last year were up at about 400,000 a year. 400,000, mostly Cuban-Americans, uh, traveling back to the island, sometimes several times. Uh, so that has been significant. And I, I should mention that uh, those who say that now we're, they're going to turn back the president's new policy, loosening travel again, even more so, uh, many of them said the same thing in 2009. We're not going to let this stand. We're going to turn that back. And nobody, you don't hear any of those voices who said that, uh, willing to turn back Cuban-American travel. Because once people get a little more freedom, they want even more of it. That's just a, a, an axiom, I think, that we can all rely on. And when travel happens, uh, then it's, it's tough to turn it back. So I, I think that uh, certainly... Uh, we ought to uh, recognize that Cuba is better off because of the travel, and, uh, and we're better off because of it as well. I, I should mention that part of my motivation uh, is to have more Cubans exposed to American values, and that happens when more Americans travel. And part of my reasoning also is to expose Americans to what's happening in Cuba. Uh, under the policy that we've had for so many years, it's been easy for uh, movie stars and, and others to travel to Cuba. And so you have Kevin Costner and Oliver Stone and others uh, going to Cuba and then talking about uh, when they come back, this land flowing with milk and honey and, and uh, this wonderful healthcare, education, science, uh, all these wonderful things happening in Cuba and how Fidel Castro was such a genius. And I've always thought that if Bob from Peoria went down to Cuba, he'd have a different reaction. <laughs> and, uh, and everybody ought to be able to travel and see what happens uh, when government controls not just the commanding heights of the economy, but the entire economy. It's a sobering experience, and, uh, and I think that more Americans ought to be exposed to it. I was on a trip one time uh, to Poland, and we met with Lech Wałęsa, 
And that was a great treat. He's a wonderful, incredible man, given his history. And uh, we are having a conversation. Just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he, he stopped the conversation. He said, I just don't understand your policy toward Cuba. <laughs> and, uh, and my ears perked up on that. And he said, you have a museum of socialism 90 miles away, and you don't let people go to it. <laughs> they ought to go. They ought to experience it. Uh, I thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting comment coming from him. Myth number three. Anything we do will only line the pockets of the regime. People will point out that as more Americans travel, because the Cuban government uh, owns, uh, you know, the, you know, the military is in charge of uh, resorts and hotels, and is so enmeshed in the economy there that any money that goes to Cuba, any travel will simply line the pockets of the regime. There is no doubt that uh, and, and anybody who tries to say that no money will go to the Cuban government when Americans travel is not telling you the truth. Sure, some of it will, a lot of it will. But also, uh, for those to say that all money from travel and economic activity or anything that happens in Cuba only benefits the regime are equally not telling you the truth. Uh, you know how you know, every communist system uh, has leakage, seepage, uh, you know, you talk about the works of uh, Hernando de Soto, talking about, uh, you know, the mystery of capital, a wonderful book he wrote about how there's just uh, underground economies everywhere. That's certainly true in Cuba. Uh, plus, some of the changes uh, that have taken place in Cuba officially. Now, after the, the, or during the special period in the 90s, the Cuban government relaxed a lot of restrictions, allowing people to start private uh, restaurants. When that special period kind of ended, the Cuban government cracked down again and uh, revoked a lot of those licenses and, uh, and pulled back. And there's no guarantee that they won't do so again, but I can tell you uh, right now, according to, to a lot of research, about 20% of the 5 million person workforce in Cuba uh, can be classified as in the private sector. That's an increase of about 150% just over the last couple of years. Uh, the Cuban government has recognized that their, their, their uh, ability to run restaurants and other private businesses is extremely inefficient, and they, have, they simply cannot prepare or provide for the entire population, so they have allowed many to go outside of it. Barbershops, restaurants, and other businesses, uh, their classification of, I think, 201 occupations that now can happen outside of the government. And uh, my sense in traveling to Cuba over the last couple of years unlike the previous years that I traveled there, is that these gains in the private sector are more irreversible, far more difficult for the, for the Cuban government to reverse, particularly because a lot of these gains have been because of private investment allowed under the president's uh, policy in 2009, allowing for virtually un unlimited remittances. Now they are unlimited. Uh, going uh, from Cuban Americans to family members and others on the island. Uh, so when Americans will travel there, uh, there will be benefits to, to ordinary Cubans. Uh, and not just that, and not just uh, in terms of money and goods taken down, but uh, we've had these programs, uh, so-called democracy programs. We spend about $20 million a year, uh, one of which was the program that got Alan Gross put in jail, uh, trying to, uh, great goal, trying to get more Cubans connected to the internet and exposed to information on the outside. Uh, but my notion has always been that uh, if you allowed completely unfettered travel to the island, uh, 
that you would accomplish that goal far more quickly, far more efficiently. You could probably accomplish in a couple of weeks what you've been trying to do for 20 years in terms of allowing and giving access to, to Cubans to information and, and technology. It's hard to know exactly where the United States is headed politically, but writer and Fox News host Tucker Carlson argues that the Democratic Party of today is effectively a coalition of the elites and the poor, of the faculty lounge and the unemployment line. He tried to make sense of our new political landscape at a Cato Institute event in Naples, Florida, this February. Here's the thing that I'm obsessed with. I, I, uh, I, as John said, I run The Daily Caller and, um, and work at Fox. And so really most of my life is spent in pretty shallow pursuits, specifically trying to predict who's going to win the next election or next series of elections. And it's actually not that hard. I bet on every single election as a matter of course and habit. And I've done pretty well just because, you know, it's pretty easy to know really who's going to win. And I would say this year... And this cycle coming up, this presidential cycle, is the one exception. I've covered every election since 1992. I've, I've, really, I've never lost money on one. And this year, I haven't put a single dollar down. And I was thinking the other day, why is that? Why is it so opaque, at least from my perspective? And the reason is really simple. And it has to do with something I, I learned this year. And here's, here's the story. So I have a ton of kids. Um, I have more kids than any other Episcopalian I know, a lot. Um, <laughs> Normal in Provo, weird in Washington where we are. So anyway, I have all these kids and they all need to be educated. So uh, one of them needed to go to a new school. So I was tasked with driving her around to all these different schools this fall. Um, so I spent a week touring schools. And if, I mean, if you've been through it, you know, you, you sit in the waiting room while your child goes in to get interviewed. And so you sit there and there's literally nothing to do. It's like 45 minutes long. And I didn't want to look at my phone because I don't want to reveal myself to be the, the, the sort of tool I am. So. I spent an entire week reading high school yearbooks. That's all I did for a full week. And it was the single most interesting thing I did all year by far. Here's what I learned. If you look at high school yearbooks in the United States from the years, let's say 1946, when the troops came home, to say 1966, that 20 year period, the first thing you notice, the salient fact of that experience is all the high school seniors look the same. It's, it, I, I'm serious which is actually seems kind of weird at first. And then the more this experiment went on, it, it rattled me. They all have the same haircut. They all have similar names. They all had similar interests. They were all in civics clubs studying Greek into model UN. Everything about them looked the same for a 20 year span. There was a continuity of culture during that period up until 1966. Something over the summer of 1966 happened and the kids in the class of 67 looked nothing like the kids in the class of 66. And that thing, of course, that happened was the 60s, and you know, 50 years later, we're still debating why it happened and what it meant, and et cetera. But there was this pivot, this dramatic pivot at that point. So this evoked in me a couple of questions. One, when was the last time we had a 20-year period in America where the culture kind of remained the same? And the answer is 50 years ago. That hasn't happened since. And the second question was, do you think the people in the class of 67 fully understood how different they were from the class that preceded them? And the answer is probably not. Because when you're in the middle of a change, even like a world historic change, and it's not just about haircuts, it's about attitudes, you're not really aware of it. 
actually. So here's the point I'm making. The pace of change in American society, and this is reflected in election results, has accelerated pretty dramatically from that point to this and is accelerating more still going forward. I mean, this is kind of a banal, obvious point, but it's something that people, at least I, almost never stop to reflect upon and its consequences. And the reasons for this are obviously many, and books have been written about it, though not enough. And the obvious ones are you know, technology, immigration. There's different people live here that really our immigration policy changed in 65. There's different people live in the country. Technology, of course, always accelerates um, the pace of change. It is change, um, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the salient political point. People don't like rapid change. They don't. Now, they say they do. And in the last two presidential elections, they said to pollsters pretty explicitly they do and they wanted it. But people lie to pollsters, and people don't know themselves. And they don't express themselves clearly. So in other words, when people say they want change, what they're really saying is they want, I don't know, incremental improvement. But they're not saying, they never have said in any country in history that I'm aware of, yes, we want wholesale change. We want dramatic change. We want the basic institutions of our life uprooted and replaced with something else. Because people just don't ever want that, period. It makes them extremely anxious. Now, I know I'm speaking to a room full of libertarians, all of whom want radical change, like yesterday, okay? So you're looking at me very skeptically. But trust me, and I, I think history bears this out, at points along the continuum when we can identify dramatic change in place, you always, without any exception, see social upheaval, sometimes violent, sometimes not, but always pretty dramatic. And that's people's natural reaction so here's the macro point I'm making. It's very hard to know where we're going, but it's worth keeping in mind a couple of facts about how things have changed. And that, as I said, when you're right in the middle of it, when you're living through one of these pivot points, it's very difficult to get perspective on how much things are changing and very easy to believe that things have always been this way, that the slogans on the barn have always been repainted or whatever. But there are a couple of things that have changed dramatically, and here's, here's just a couple of them. One, the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the middle class, which this, you know, this, like most trends, this has been a long time coming, but it's, it's official. It's absolutely official. So for my, I'm 45, for I would, you know, my entire life, uh, the Democratic Party made a claim and the president to this day makes a claim that we are the party that represents the average American, the middle class American, not just culturally or economically middle class, but culturally middle class. And that has always been kind of true. If you look at the results of the 2012 election, it becomes clear that the transformation is complete. The Democratic Party is not a middle-class party. Middle-class people don't vote Democrat, actually. The Democratic Party is a coalition between the elites and the poor, okay? And everybody else is left out. So if you look at exit polling, for example, from 2012, people with master's degrees who make over 300 grand a year are the most single most likely category to vote Democrat. So the dichotomy between you know, the working man's party, the party of Walter Ruther, the lunch bucket party, and the country club party, not only is inoperative, it's ludicrous, it's almost exactly the opposite. So the party is now a coalition, again, between you know, the faculty lounge and the unemployment line, basically. So what does this mean? It means that the concerns of the Democratic Party, and these are on full display every day, are completely different from what they were when I was growing up. And if you're older than I, very, that much more different from what they were like when you were a child. So the concerns, traditionally, the Democratic Party were wages, wages. Democrats were concerned about how much the average person made 
Because by the way, that is the key concern of the average person. And, and let me just parenthetically note, if you are interested in ideas, and especially if you're a libertarian, and I'm speaking about myself here, pretty easy to forget that actually, and imagine that the average person's deepest desire um, is for something abstract. And oh, that it were, I mean, I wish that were the case, uh, but it's not. The average person's deepest desire is for security, sorry. And that's reflected most concretely in wages. And the Democratic Party spoke to that desire pretty effectively for like, you know, 80 years. Um, if you look at the constellation of issues that the president is really concerned about, you'll notice that none of them have any bearing at all on the concerns of the average working person. The most excited I have seen in the last year, aides, White House aides, a lot of whom live in my neighborhood in Northwest DC, the most excited I've seen them in the last year, think back to the last 12 months, what's the most exciting thing from a progressive point of view that has happened? CVS stopped selling cigarettes. <laughs> Probably didn't register on your important meter that you maintain at your house, okay? But for the White House, this was a signature event. It was so significant that they had a special briefing to announce it, okay? Is this the kind, I mean, this is the kind of thing, the kind of issue, and I would add this to, you know, a lot of other issues like, sorry, just gonna say it, gay marriage, pot legalization, whether your neighborhood has a Whole Foods, global warming, okay, that, you know, may or may not be important, um, but I can promise you they're not important to the average person making 35 grand a year, driving UberX or working at Walmart. There's not, period. They're highly important to people seeking tenure at Wesleyan, highly, okay? And that is the group that the Democratic Party represents. Now, what does this mean? It means that that party has completely changed, completely and utterly. It also means that a huge percentage of American voters are currently up for grabs, completely up for grabs. So if the Democratic Party represents the rich and the poor, shouldn't be too hard to represent everybody else, should it? Flip side of this is the Republican Party has also changed, I would say. And if you watch the Rachel Maddow program, um, and you know, don't, uh, I actually hired Rachel Maddow uh, when, when I worked at MSNBC back before it was the Leon Trotsky channel. And um, I hired her to debate me every night. Uh, she's a great debater, and she certainly means it, uh, regardless of the evidence. Um, but, uh, but, if you, but if you watch that channel, or if you, you, know, you just pick up the, the ambient noise uh, from most of the media, the idea is that the Republican Party is more than ever a kind of retrograde, you know, the finest minds of the 12th century kind of party, you know, a, a party that is totally uh, controlled by evangelicals who reject modernity, who think, you know, man and dinosaur live together. The Flintstones was a documentary. You know what I mean? It's just kind of who's, who wake up in the morning trying to limit women's health options or whatever that is more conservative than ever. Um, and the truth is very different. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Evangelicals are less, less powerful, I would argue, than they've ever been within the Republican Party. But if you're, we're going to be totally honest about it, I think you'd conclude that the Republican Party is less sure of what it believes. So in other words, the Democratic Party has reoriented and has a pretty precise series of points on the compass it's pursuing. And the Republican Party is just absolutely floating at sea trying to figure out what it's for.
The intelligence community's chief defenders may, so to speak, be more Catholic than the Pope when it comes to reforming surveillance authorities. A limited national security agency reform effort failed in part because congressional defenders of NSA opposed it, even though the intelligence community was broadly supportive. At a Cato Capitol Hill briefing, senior fellow Julian Sanchez discussed the broad reach of the surveillance state. So in that uh, other State of the Union speech, I was at least initially heartened to hear President Obama saying that uh, while others had moved beyond the debate about uh, uh, our intelligence agency's surveillance programs, uh, he had not. Uh, my enthusiasm waned a bit when he made clear that what he meant by that was that he would be issuing a report uh, about things they had done internally uh, to add additional safeguards on those programs. Uh, and that report, that, which was released earlier this week, I think mostly underscores uh, how far short uh, they've fallen in reform efforts, uh, not just from what several independent panels have recommended, uh, but from indeed what the president himself committed to uh, just over a year ago. I think uh, what we see in that report is by far not enough, uh, both from a, a civil liberties perspective, because we have constructed a truly unprecedented and sprawling architecture of data collection on the premise that effective intelligence now requires extraordinarily broad and in some cases uh, entirely indiscriminate collection of data about uh, the guilty and the innocent alike, uh, an architecture that uh, it, because of its breadth um, could in a time of crisis or you know, at the behest of uh, people with uh, poor motives, uh, be, I think, with the flip of a switch, uh, turned from legitimate to illegitimate purposes in the way we have seen in our history repeatedly over decades uh, under uh, intelligence services with inadequate oversight, although they lacked anything like the capabilities of the modern NSA and FBI. Um, but it's also inadequate, I think, for economic reasons. Uh, we see increasingly distrust in global markets of American technology companies. We've seen projections that the American cloud computing sector alone stands to lose something on the order of $180 billion over a period of three or four years uh, because of that declining trust, especially in the enterprise sector. Um, we've seen precipitous declines in, for example, uh, global orders for Cisco's routers following reports about how NSA was uh, installing malware on those, not just for particular individuals, but uh, at the corporate level. Uh, and so both to restore public confidence in our ability to protect civil liberties and uh, global market confidence in the trustworthiness of American technology firms, uh, we need to do quite a bit more. Um, so of course, uh, at the end of the last session, we saw the uh, main surveillance reform vehicle, the USA Freedom Act stall uh, in the Senate. Uh, the, I guess, most prominent component of that was reforms to Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act, uh, as well as some related authorities to get uh, telecommunications metadata. Um, this is most famously, of course, the basis for the bulk uh, telephony metadata program revealed by Edward Snowden. The president more than a year ago committed to end that in its current form, uh, end the bulk collection by government of telephony metadata, although that continues and was recently renewed yet again. Uh, several independent bodies, the, the Privacy and Civil Liberties <coughs> Oversight Board, as well as the president's hand-picked bipartisan surveillance review group have both said this is a program of extremely limited effectiveness uh, that could safely be ended and should 
be ended. Uh, the PCLOB, the Privacy and Civil Rights Oversight Board, even went into some detail examining uh, claims about the efficacy of this program, supposed success stories, terror plots that had been foiled, and went through one at a time, demonstrating how in 11 out of 12 of those cases, in fact, the program, contrary to the claims made in its behalf, had provided no unique intelligence of use uh, to, uh, to FBI or NSA, and in the Twelfth uh, case involving uh, material support, meaning monetary donations to the Somalian group Al-Shabaab, um, had been, you know, in fact, causally um, the first way they found uh, some useful information, but that it was not necessary, that targeted methods would have sufficed. Um, we have had the agreement of the intelligence community that with the reform uh, approach that was outlined in that legislation. Um, they can duplicate the essential functionality of that program, even though, again, it seems to be of limited effectiveness. Uh, we've seen the uh, uh, general counsel for, the counsel for the Director of National Intelligence, Bob Litt, at a conference we held at Cato, and then again this week at the uh, uh, Brookings Institute, saying the intelligence community was comfortable with this reform, that it was uh, something that preserved all the capabilities they required, that indeed they wished it had passed, um, and yet we hear uh, frankly, somewhat confusing invocations of things like the attacks on Charlie Hebdo and uh, the rise of ISIS uh, invoked as reasons that, again, despite what the intelligence community says, um, we need to preserve a domestic call records program. Uh, I, think, I think there is such a thing as being more Catholic than the Pope. Um, if the intelligence community and every expert body says these are reforms that we can undertake that will improve uh, privacy and civil liberties protections uh, without hampering the intelligence mission, uh, that there should not be uh, uh, there should not be the resistance we see. Um, similarly, uh, we have not seen uh, any, any significant reforms to collection under Section 7 of two, 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. This is uh, an authority essentially allowing uh, general warrants uh, that permit NSA analysts to select uh, foreign-based targets, uh, but of course also allowing their communications with Americans. Uh, and we know that, uh, at least in the last count, there were over 90,000 such targets under one order, one sort of quasi-warrant um, tasked, and of course, again, uh, many, many, many American communications are swept up in the process. Uh, this is particularly concerning given that we know that the FBI is authorized to uh, search these databases for the identifiers of Americans. So uh, people, of course, it would not be legal to collect on directly because their citizens are in the United States without a particularized judicial warrant um, can then be uh, pulled out of this enormous pool of global communications they've collected from an enormous number of targets who, as uh, former NSA, uh, NSA Director Hayden uh, recently stressed, are not necessarily bad guys they, because NSA doesn't just look at bad guys. It just it looks at people who are saying things that are interesting. Uh, and indeed, the FBI can do this, can search this database for American communications even when they're conducting mere assessments, meaning not a full predicated investigation based on some kind of actual evidence of wrongdoing, but uh, just to satisfy themselves that there is not wrongdoing uh, being committed. Uh, it's also concerning because of a practice we learned about called uh, so-called about collection. That is to say, a target is selected uh, and accounts or phone numbers are selected. This is typically most concerning with respect to internet communication, so an email address or online account um, is tasked for collection. But the collection does not just encompass communications to or from that address. 
Rather, all international internet communications are scanned, the contents of those communications scanned, and communications neither to nor from the target, and perhaps to or from Americans, are collected if they contain a reference to a target identifier. Um, again, this recent report has proposed a number of additional internal approvals uh, for the use of some of these techniques. Uh, but as uh, I think Justice Scalia said uh, memorably in a recent Supreme Court opinion, uh, our founders did not fight and die for uh, stricter internal protocols. The new book, Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution, takes a deep dive into what it means when corporations act in accordance with owners' religious convictions. Co-author Ilya Shapiro provided a bit of analysis of the now-famous Hobby Lobby case and its implications for the future of religious expression. By now, everyone here has, has heard uh, that the uh, Supreme Court ruled that corporations can fire women who use birth control and that religion trumps all other values in constitutional discourse. Uh, at least that's what my Twitter feed told me uh, when the Supreme Court decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby came down. Actually, what was at stake with the case had nothing to do with the power of big business, the freedom to use any kind of contraceptive, uh, or how to balance religious liberty against other constitutional concerns. Hobby Lobby was actually a straightforward question of statutory interpretation regarding whether the government was justified in this particular case in overriding religious liberties. The Supreme Court ruled that closely held corporations can't be forced to pay for all of their employees' contraceptives if doing so would violate their religious beliefs. So there was no constitutional decision, no expansion of corporate rights, and no weighing of religion versus the right to use birth control. But let's unpack that. Let's, let's step back for a second. So Department of Health and Human Services included 20 contraceptives at, as part of its minimum essential coverage that all insurance plans had to uh, have to satisfy the Obamacare employer mandate. Through interpreting that requirement from the legislation, all that the legislation said was you have to cover preventative care. And in the course of interpreting that, they uh, listed 20 contraceptives. Included among those were four to which uh, certain religious uh, employers or, or, or people who ran businesses, uh, both for-profit and non-profit around the country, objected. These tended to be uh, uh, pills and, and other devices, uh, IUDs, morning-after pills, um, that, uh, that work in part by preventing fertilized eggs from, from implanting. And uh, people uh, object to this on religious grounds, uh, including David and Barbara Green, the founders and uh, owners of the Arts and Crafts Emporium Hobby Lobby. I've actually never been to uh, a Hobby Lobby, but they, uh, they consider it part of their Christian duties to provide good health care to their employees, uh, but they also object uh, to these uh, various, these four items on the list of 20. Um, but not complying with the mandate would have meant $1.3 million in daily fines. So the Greens, uh, both on their own behalf and through their corporate uh, uh, entity, Hobby Lobby, sued the government, both under the First Amendment, uh, but more importantly, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Now, RIFRA, it's a curious statute. It calls for kind of narrow case-by-case -case adjudication uh, of religious objections to uh, government actions. 
It was passed unanimously in the House in 97 to 3 in the Senate uh, and signed by President Clinton in 93. Uh, its lead sponsors included such right-wing religious zealots as Chuck Schumer, then in the House, and Ted Kennedy in the Senate. And uh, these religious zealots' intent was to reverse a 1990 Supreme Court ruling by that heretical secular humanist Justice Antonin Scalia uh, that approved the constitutionality of generally applicable laws that burden religion so long as that they didn't specifically intend to discriminate against uh, religious people. That is, if objectors wanted an exemption, they would have to seek it from the legislature, not from the courts. Now, when someone makes a RIFRA claim, courts are supposed to look at, first, whether the government action at issue uh, actually imposes a significant burden on religious exercise. If it does, then the government must show that it nevertheless is pursuing a compelling interest and is using the least restrictive means of achieving that interest. The burden here is clear. The government didn't even contest that there was a substantial burden on, uh, on the Greens, on Hobby Lobby. Uh, the court ultimately assumed that the government's asserted interest was compelling. And by the way, the way that the federal government litigated this case was curious. It didn't say that there was a compelling interest in uh, free contraceptives or something like that. They, they, all they said was public health and gender equality, very kind of broad uh, interests that generally uh, are held to be too vague when you're trying to satisfy what's effectively a strict scrutiny uh, by the courts. Uh, and indeed, some lower courts ruled against the government on that basis, that their asserted interest wasn't compelling because too vague. It's kind of like saying, our interest is in good public policy. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court just assumed that that interest was compelling, and so the case came down to that third bit, whether uh, this was the contraceptive mandate was the least restrictive means of achieving the government's goal. Uh, and that's where the government lost, because it simply did not show, could not show, that there was no way to provide free or cheap birth control without burdening believers. For example, the government could pay for the contraceptives uh, itself, or provide tax credits, uh, or make the kind of regulatory accommodations that it offered to nonprofit organizations, some of which are still litigating some of these accommodations. But again, none of these sorts of things were offered to the for-profit businesses. Uh, some of these religious groups, by the way, some of the nonprofits, uh, one of them is called Little Sisters of the Poor. Any of you who are plaintiff's lawyers or, or budding plaintiff's lawyers, I suggest you get them to be your lead plaintiff in any case you file on any subject. Um, so instead, the Health and Human Services just chose to continue forcing people to do its bidding. Uh, and the court said, you know, you don't have to do that. You can achieve your goal in some other way. So nobody's been denied access to contraceptives. Everyone uh, who's, uh, you know, you, women can still uh, uh, buy, acquire uh, whatever legal products they could uh, before. Uh, and there's now more freedom for all Americans to live their lives how they want without checking their conscience uh, at the office door. Instead, this was just a mandate. Um, that was a, a rights-busting government compulsion that didn't have sufficient justification. Now, before I sit down and, and end this explanation of a rather simple case, I guess I should address uh, the hubbub uh, about corporate rights. After all, the title of our book and of our event today is Religious Liberties for Corporations, which I really think is an academic exercise regarding you know, how many mandates can dance on the head of a beleaguered citizen. Because uh, after all, uh, as Cato's brief uh, described, it doesn't really matter whether you lawyer up your argument, your claim in terms of the corporation asserting it or the, the founders, the owners, 
um, at least in a closely held corporation, certainly, and I guess you could theoretically conceive of a public, publicly held corporation as well, where the interests are all aligned, uh, it's the people whose beliefs uh, that are being uh, impinged, or the, who's, out of whose pocketbook ultimately the fine would be paid. So I think it, it really doesn't matter. Now, specifically uh, on, the, on the legal merits of RIFRA, RIFRA itself technically applies to all persons. Uh, which is a legal term that, unless Congress specifies otherwise, includes non-human entities. Um, but a for-profit corporation can't really exercise religion, can it? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to apply. It's kind of like applying the term person to a statute about uh, you know, abortion or the death penalty or something like this. It just, it's nonsensical. Well, it's certainly true that Hobby Lobby uh, doesn't pray or have a soul to save. It doesn't even have knees to pray on, right? Uh, but it's hard to say it doesn't operate according to certain religious ideals. It closes on Sundays. It doesn't sell shot glasses. It takes out ads uh, uh, in, in importuning readers to seek Jesus. Uh, it refuses to backhaul beer on its trucks. Well, some, one way that uh, uh, retailers make a lot of profits is uh, when they, their trucks go out with their merchandise. Uh, when they come back, they're empty. But rather than having them empty, they'll haul other stuff, including... Uh, most lucratively, uh, beer. Uh, but Hobby Lobby does not do that, uh, foregoing considerable profits. Um, but really, neither the profit motive nor the business structure change anything, because modern law uniformly around the country in every state lets corporations pursue any lawful purpose. They don't just have to pursue the bottom line. Uh, indeed, corporate social responsibility is a, is a, uh, a trendy, well, it's been trendy for 10 or 15 years or, or, or more. Um, Starbucks, uh, you know, has fair trade coffee, and Chipotle and Whole Foods care about the sourcing of their organic free-range meat, and Google says don't be evil. Uh, lots of organizations, lots of business organizations have all sorts of uh, ethical systems uh, according to which they pursue uh, their mission, and there's, there's nothing really uh, unusual about that, and I don't think uh, that ethical system being religious uh, means that it's subject to less protection. None of these considerations undermine RIFRA's solicitude for the rights of humans, including owners, officers, and shareholders. As Justice Alito said uh, for the majority here, protecting the free exercise rights of corporations protects the religious liberty of the humans who own and control these companies. Indeed, associational rights flow from the, individuals, um, from the individual rights of the people who make up the groups to which we attribute those rights, be those groups corporations, partnerships, unions, fraternal organizations, political advocacy groups, a bunch of buddies playing poker. Um, this is not a controversial statement. It didn't, didn't even start with uh, Citizens United, uh, right, which uh, uh, freed up independent political speech for all sorts of associations, including corporations uh, and unions. For a long, long time, we have understood that corporations and other associational groups uh, have rights. If they didn't, then the police could storm the offices of IBM and take all their computers because there's no Fourth Amendment right there. If, uh, or uh, the mayor of New York could say he really likes Rockefeller Center and wants to move his office there and can just take it without paying just compensation in violation of the Fifth Amendment. So corporate structure uh, really doesn't matter. It seems kind of odd to say that you know, as an LLC or a partnership or however other way you can pursue a profit, uh, it's okay. Um, but once you incorporate, for some reason, there's a magical switch where you lose your, your certain rights. Nor does profit motive matter. Of course, we have Jewish and Muslim butchers who pursue their for, you know, profit motive uh, uh, 
with, uh, according to religious beliefs. Indeed, one of the co-plaintiffs of Hobby Lobby was a Christian bookstore. They're in it to make a buck, Mardell Books is, but they're selling exclusively Christian uh, literature. So let's put this corporations aren't people misdirection to rest. At least for closely held companies, if you pierce their corporate veils, it's their owners who will bleed. Um, I share the, the practical skepticism that a publicly traded company, a Fortune 500 company, say, could align all of its stakeholders' beliefs to assert a RIFRA claim. But in theory, it's possible. If Hobby Lobby went public tomorrow, and in all of its SEC prospectuses and investor uh, memoranda and so forth, it laid out clearly how it pursued its business, wasn't uh, defrauding anyone, I don't suppose there would be anything wrong with that. Um, here, you know, the First Amendment protects free speech, free exercise, not certain speakers here in the, in the Citizens United context, uh, and people don't lose their rights, uh, First Amendment, RIFRA, or otherwise, when they get together. But the larger conclusion to draw here is that the essence of freedom is that government can't willy-nilly force people to do things that violate their consciences. Now, some may argue that there's a conflict here between religious freedom and women's freedom or women's rights, but that's a false choice, as the president likes to say. Um, without this rule, again, women are still free to obtain contraceptives, abortions, and whatever else isn't illegal. They just can't force their employer to pay for it. And you know, if Hobby Lobby's employees were all of a sudden not having access to contraceptives, I think we would have heard about it by now. Moreover, while the focus of the contraceptive mandate cases is the intersection of corporate rights and religious liberties, there's a bigger issue here. This is just the latest example of the difficulties inherent in turning healthcare, or increasingly our economy more broadly, over to the government. When something is socialized or treated as a public utility, we're forced to fight for every carve out of liberty. The more government controls, whether healthcare, education, or even marriage, the greater the battles over conflicting values. I call this process hobby lobbification, and I'll be writing about it more in, in coming months. With certain things, such as national defense or basic infrastructure and other real public goods, we largely agree, at least inside uh, reasonable margins. But we have vast disagreements about social programs, economic regulation, and so much else that government now dominates at the expense of individual liberty. So those who supported Hobby Lobby before the court uh, are rightly concerned that people are being forced uh, to do what their religious beliefs prohibit. But that all comes with the collectivized territory. With recent tragedies in Europe, intimidation and self-censorship are now at the center of the free speech debate. No one understands the stakes better than Fleming Rose, an editor at the Danish newspaper that published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad and set off a global firestorm. In his new book, The Tyranny of Silence, Rose recounts that story and takes a personal look at attempts to limit free speech. You can get your copy at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.